بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الخلق والمرسلين سيدنا وحبيبنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله تعالى وبركاته we thank and praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for gathering us once again on a Sunday for the Fajr prayer and thereafter the recitation of the Al-Ghurdul Latif by Imam Al-Haddad which is a compilation of prophetic adhkar and then the recitation of Surah Yasin and in between the word and Surah Yasin we made istighfar 27 times and we recited Astaghfirullah lil-mu'mineen wal-mu'minat and our Prophet Muhammad وسلم, informed us in a tradition that there is a group of people and through those people Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives sustenance to all of mankind. And when he described these people, he, وسلم, he said that these people every morning and every evening 27 times they seek forgiveness for themselves and for the believing males and the believing females. So this morning we resemble those people and we ask that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us from those people who through them Allah grant sustenance to all of mankind. Amin ya Rabbil Alameen. So we continue this morning with our reading of fiqh. And uh, we spoke quite a bit last week about an introduction to fiqh, the sources of religion which is the Quran and Sunnah. We spoke about the development of fiqh during the time of the Salaf al-Salih and the nature of fiqh among our pious predecessors how they were a group of scholars and they were known as the Mujtahidun and the Mujtahidun they had direct access to extrapolate law from the Quran and Sunnah and how there was another group of people and they were the majority they did not have that skill of ijtihad that skill of extrapolating law from the Quran and Sunnah and therefore when they required guidance on a particular matter be it halal or haram they would go to those scholars who know and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made reference to the system in the glorious Quran when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Fas'alu ahla dhikri in kuntum la ta'lamun. Ask the scholars if you do not know. Fas'alu ahla dhikri in kuntum la ta'lamun. And that's important because it uh, puts things into perspective again. The idea of asking, the idea of taking the positions and the opinions of other ulama. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala indirectly in that verse, when Allah says to you, go and ask those who know, Allah is telling you that, Many of you will not know and many of you won't have the ability to go and deduct law from the Quran and Sunnah. And again, I'm addressing a problem that we have within our community where there are those who are saying to not follow the positions of the scholars but do your own ijtihad. Every person should go to the Quran himself, he should go to the Sunnah himself and deduct law by himself. If that was the case, why does Allah say, ask those who know if you do not know? Because it's a reality that not everybody will possess that skill of ijtihad, of deducting law from the Quran and Sunnah. Uh, we spoke a bit about Al-Imam Al-Shafi'i rahimahullahu ta'ala who is the founder of the Shafi'i school and I, I don't recall to what extent I spoke about him but I think a very important thing to highlight of Imam Al-Shafi'i rahimahullahu ta'ala was that he was from the Quraysh. He was from the family of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. There's something I like doing whenever speaking about Imam Al-Shafi'i just running through his lineage. So he was Muhammad and his father was Idris and his grandfather was Abbas and his great-grandfather was Uthman and his great-great-grandfather's name was Shafi'ah. 
So he was Muhammad bin Idris, Ibn Abbas, Ibn Uthman, Ibn Shafi'. And that's where he received this. He's, 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 let's just call it a nickname for now. Al-Shafi'i came from his great-grandfather Shafi'i, who was the son of Sa'ib. And this grandfather, Imam Shafi'i, Al-Sa'ib, he actually became Muslim during the time of Badr. He was one of the kuffar that came out to fight the Muslims on the day of Badr. And he was one of the captives, one of those people that was taken as prisoners. And during that time, he embraced and accepted Islam. And of course, from his offspring came an Imam Shafi'i. He was Sa'ib. Ibn Ubaid, Ibn Abdi Yazid, Ibn Hashim, Ibn Muttalib, Ibn Abdi Manaf. And that's where his lineage meets with the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Because Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The son of? The son of? Abdullah. The son of? Abdul? Muttalib. The son of? The son of You know, I, I, I enjoy doing this. MashaAllah, the Yusuf saved everyone now. What I was going to say is that the joint intellectual capacity of some 50, 60 brothers didn't come to the answer, but the Yusuf saved you all, alhamdulillah. So Hashim, Muhammad bin Abdullah bin Abdul Muttalib, even Hashim. Ibn Abdi Manaf, and that's the central grandfather of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and Imam Shafi. And there's a there's a weak tradition, there's a weak tradition where the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam said that a member from my family, from the Quraysh, he will come, and he came 150 years after the Hijrah, Imam Shafi, and he will spread spread light throughout the world. Imam Shafi was a a master jurist. He was a he was a master in terms of language, and I think I mentioned that, and. Uh, he had many students, and his most famous students in Egypt were two people, uh, Al-Imam Al-Muzani, rahimahullah ta'ala, as well as the Mu'addin of the Jami Ibn Tulun Al-Rabi' Ibn Sulaiman Al-Muradi. So Al-Imam Al-Shafi used to conduct his classes in the Jami of Amr ibn al-As. Whoever visited the Jami of Amr ibn al-As in Cairo? Sulaiman, what are you so it's one, of the, it's one of the first masjids, if not the first masjid that was built in Cairo. And if you ever go to Cairo, make a point of not visiting the pyramids, but make a point of going to the jami of Amr ibn al-As. It was the first masjid built in Cairo, and it was the masjid where Imam Shafi used to conduct his lessons. I remember some, uh, some uh, we used to travel to Cairo yearly. I used to travel with my teacher, Munatar Karan, and a few other brothers, and we should attend the book fair there. And uh, one year we took one of the books of Imam Shafi, rahimahullah ta'ala, it was called Jumma'ul Ilm, the shortest book we could find, because Imam Shafi had many works. And the idea was to just read a book of Imam Shafi in various places where Imam Shafi taught or his students taught. So we started off at the Jami' of Ibn Tulun, where the student of Imam Shafi, Al-Rabi ibn Sulaiman Al-Muradi, used to, after Imam Shafi passed on, Al-Rabi ibn Sulaiman used to transmit the Shafi madhab to scholars from around the world in the Jami of Ibn Tulun. You know, so we started our journey there, we went to the Jami Ibn Tulun, it was uh, still being renovated at the time, so we read part of the book outside the Jami of Ibn Tulun, where the student of Imam Shafi used to transmit his works to the rest of the world. And then from there we went, this is now, of course, myself and 
Taha and a few other brothers. And then we went to the Jami of Amr ibn al-As, where Imam Shafi himself used to conduct these lessons and teach his books. And we read part of the book over there. And then, where do you think our final stop was? To complete the book. The cover of Imam Shafi. Imam Shafi lies buried in Cairo. And we went to Imam Shafi rahimahullah's grave and greeted, sat, and we completed the book over there. And it was a beautiful experience. And uh, I'm only mentioning these places to instill within you a desire to visit them. And to instill within you love for this great Imam, Shafi'i rahimahullah ta'ala. La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So uh, I don't want to get too much in introductions because we're going to take up all our time. But we want to jump straight into the fiqh this morning, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, we spoke about the branches of fiqh last week. Does everyone recall those branches? There were seven branches in total. So who wants to say what they were? <coughs> Shokit is jumping. So he says business law. What else? Ibadat, which is rituals, Islamic rituals. And then? Muslim personal law. Al-Ahwal al-Shakhsiyya, or what they used to refer to as Mu'asharat. That's three. Eh? Foreign policies, Asiyar, policies that an Islamic state adopts with other states. That's four. I suppose when you're sitting with a book in front of you with notes, it's very easy to answer, sugar. <laughs> we said business law. Qada, court system, and then government law. Asiyas, Asharia, laws that government can make within his country. And then there's one left. Criminal law. What did you say? Criminal. Criminal law. So punishment, mandatory and discretionary. Khair. But we're beginning with ibadat, we're beginning with rituals, and I'm mentioning the branches of law so that rituals is generally something that is covered over and over again. We did it at madrasa, and when fiqh classes are conducted, normally we cover rituals. And the part of fiqh that we want to come to and start emphasizing on are the other branches of fiqh that we never really come to. Right? And I'm mentioning this again with an intention of instilling within your heart a desire to study those branches of law and not to give it a month or so and then everyone starts dropping out. After Fajr, it can be very challenging. Right, so we started classes about a year or two ago on Sunday mornings. And mashallah, Ibrahim Gabriel's brought something like 20 or 30 brothers. And then eventually we sat with an average of seven or eight brothers every Sunday. May Allah grant us all steadfastness. May Allah grant us consistency. This is the best way to spend your life praying Fajr in Jama'ah, reading prophetic adhkar, and sitting in a class of knowledge, and then praying your Salatul Duha. Every, every day should be like this. And for a start, we're going to make Sundays like this, inshallah. So, we want to start with the text, Mukhtasar Abi Shuja, the ultimate conspectus, by the great scholar, Al-Qadi Abu Shuja, Ahmad ibn al-Hussein, al-Asfahani, rahimahullah ta'ala. And uh, for that, we need to select a reader. So who's reading for us? We need someone that reads good English. So those of you who have copies of the book, try to open your books and follow as he reads. 
And uh, those who do not have copies, there's probably only one or two left at the bookshop. And we've ordered more, so within the next probably two weeks, at most, we should have copies again, inshallah. All praises to Allah, Lord of the worlds. May the blessings of Allah be upon our, our liege Lord, the Prophet Muhammad, and upon his pure household and his companions, one and all. The Judge Abu Shuja ibn al Hussein ibn Ahmed al Asfahani, may Allah Most High grant him mercy, said, One of my friends, may Allah Most High protect him, asked me to make a short treatise in law according to the school of Imam al Shafi'i. May Allah grant him mercy and his good favor. That is of utmost concision and paramount brevity, so that it meaning, be, so that its meaning, becomes closer to the one studying it and easier for novices to memorize. He asked that I include numerous categories and encompass all properties. So I responded, seeking reward and desiring that Allah Most High grant me success in doing the correct thing. Verily, He is capable of whatever He wishes and kind what I'd like to do, every time we read a section of the English, I'd like to read it from the Arabic, so that when we have Arabic students with us, they're able to follow the English text, as well as the Arabic text, and we're on page number one, we're starting the book, right, and... Uh, the intention thereby, of course, is that so, so both the, both the uh, non-Arabic speaking individual and the student of deen that understands Arabic benefits from the text, inshallah ta'ala. So I comment, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, wa bihi nasta'in. Qala al-Musannifu rahimahullahu ta'ala, nafa'ana Allahu biulumi wa bikum fi ad-darayni, ameen. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammadin al-Nabihi wa alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. قال القاضي أبو شجاع أحمد بن الحسين بن أحمد الأصفهاني رحمه الله تعالى سألني بعض الأصدقاء حفظهم الله تعالى أن أعمل مختصرا في الفقه على مذهب الإمام الشافعيه رحمة الله تعالى عليه ورضوانه في غاية الإخصصار ونهاية الإيجاز ليقرب على المتعلم درسه ويسهل على المبتدئ حفظه وأن أكثر فيه من التقسيمات وحصر الحصال فجبته إلى ذلك طالبا للثواب راغبا إلى الله تعالى في التوفيق للصواب إنه على ما يشاء قدير وبعباده لطيف خبير So that's the introduction of the author and for me it truly brings back memories when we studied this text, the first time I covered this text was in 2002, a good uh, 13 years ago. We read over this introduction so much that I memorized it. I don't know if I still remember, I still know it by memory, but we read so much over it, subhanAllah. And the idea then was more looking into the grammar of what he is saying. And, uh, those were very, very exciting days. So, Qadi Abu Shuja'in Ahmad ibn al-Husayn al-Asfahani. The judge, Qadi Hussein, Qadi Abu Shuja' Ahmad ibn Hussein, that was his name, he said. And he's stating the reason why he has authored this book. So he authored the book, he said, Sa'alani ba'du al-Asdiqa'i. Some of my friends, they came to me and asked that I author a short work on Shafi'i. A mukhtasar. Now, the beautiful thing about the, a mukhtasar, which he translates here as what? A short treatise. So the word mukhtasar, the beautiful thing about it is that 
The treatise is short, but it's mean, it carries all the meanings of a long text. Right? Whereas you find other Shafi'i fiqh works which are going to be mabsut. It's a lengthy work, so it's long words, or many words, with many meaning. But a mukhtasar is little wordy, much meaning. So in other words, he's going to take words, he's going to be writing with brevity, but they're going to be packed with meaning. And that's the beauty of a mukhtasar. And the idea again there is that he said, لِيَسْهُلَ عَلَى الْمُتَعَلِّمِ حِفْظُهُ So that the memorization of the text becomes easy. He wrote this book short so that you can memorize it. So who's going to memorize the text? What happened was that, you know, the, the raghba, the desire for Muslims to memorize religious texts, that's something that's dying out within the ummah. You don't find it any longer. Authors to write these short works so that people could memorize them. And once you have it in your memory, it's very easy to, to recall or draw back something that you memorized. The only, the only branch of scholars that really pay attention to memorization these days are the Qurra. So you go to Mullah Salim Gaibi and them, they are very particular memorizing texts. But there's perhaps the drive behind that is that the Qurra are like crazy about ijazat. They're just looking for ijazah, for a shorter sanad all the time, and a ijazah for this text and an ijazah for that text. And uh, with the result, you find that the conditions the Sheikh placed down for you to receive ijazah permission to transmit a particular text is that you need to memorize the text. And perhaps that's the reason why the Qur'a is so particular in memorizing. So you find in, within our community there are a few people that has memorized the Tuhfatul Atfal and there are people that has memorized the Al-Muqaddimah Al-Jazariya of Imam Al-Jazari. And you find people that has actually memorized the entire Shatibiya of Imam Al-Shatibi and so forth. But once upon a time that same idea of memorizing text used to exist in fiqh as well. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala select from us those who will take up the challenge to start memorizing text once again. There was a scholar that took the entire Mukhtasar of Abi Shuja, Al-Imriti his name was, and he took the whole text and he put it into poetry. So he converted this text in front of you into a poem. Because it's easier to memorize poetry than what it is to memorize prose. So if you really want to memorize, Come to me and I'll give you the poem version of this book and you, can, you could memorize the poem, inshallah. There's one youngster that actually memorized it. Um, Maulana Farid San, what's his surname? What's this, the surname? Mona Farid Majid from Mitchell's Plain. He has a son, Usama, studying at our madrasa. And uh, he has memorized the poem of Al-Imriti. Isaac's. Mona Farid Isaac and his son is Usama Isaac. So that's one. May Allah instill within hours. Or may we have children that do so, inshallah. I want my father to say Amin. Khair, <laughs> 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 so we begin with purification. Uh, purification, chapter one, water. Purification is possible with seven types of water. Number one, rain water. Number two, sea water. Number three, river water. Number four, well water. Number five, spring water. Number six, snow. And number seven, hail. So the author goes on and he says, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Kitab al-Tahara, al-miyahu al-lati yajuzu biha al-tathiru sab'u miyahin 
ماء السماء وماء البحر وماء البئر وماء العين وماء الثلج وماء البرد he begins by saying that purification is possible with seven types of water so there's a there's a lot of assumption going into this particular text over here purification when we're speaking of purification what is the objective what do we want to purify she's telling us purification is possible with seven types of water and that's in its place but what does that mean to you and i why do you want to purify what do we want to purify our bodies from what impure what type of impurities The Yusuf says najasa, and then there's filth, such as sweat, what else? Right, we all woke up this morning. Of course you woke up, that's why you're here. <laughs> so, you woke up and then you wanted to pray your Fajr Salah, or your Tahajjud, depending on what time you woke up. And when you wanted to make Salah, you were in a state of impurity. Could you just make Salah? No. What, did, what was required of you? I had to take wudu. Why did you take wudu? There is a word I'm looking for. Because you had to remove what from your body? Hadath. So there are two types of impurities. That, there are literally three types of impurities. When we're speaking about a ritual purification, we're not worried about the third. The third is going to be filth. You know, uh, sweat and odors and so forth that an individual picks up through the day. That's a purification of the physical body that is not our discussion right now. Right? We focused more on rituals, ibadat. And therefore the two types of impurities that we're going to be focusing on is number one, najasa. Najasa is a physical impurity that was deemed impure by the sharia. So what are examples of najasa? Stool, what else? Urine, what else? Blood. Pus. Is pus included in? What else? Sorry? Alcohol, khamar. So these are examples of physical impurities deemed impure by the Sharia, najasa. You could call them najas if you want. We have a tendency to call it najis, but the actual impurity is not called najis with a kasra on the jim. The actual impurity is called najas with a fatha on the jim. A ah sound on the jim, najas. Do you get that? What does najis then mean? When something is soiled with najasa, then that item that is soiled is called najis. So najis is a sifa quality, whereas najas is a noun. The actual impurity is called najas. But if I have urine that soils my jubba, then my jubba becomes a jubba najisa. It becomes najis. In other words, the actual jubba is not, doesn't have najasa. It's just been stained with najasa and therefore I need to wash najasa out. But the actual najasa is called najas and something that is stained with najasa is called najis. So we gave examples of najasa. How do I remove that urine from my jubba or that najasa from my jubba what do I need to use that's what we're saying over here water what did the text read 
Purification is possible with seven types of water. When that najasa is in my jubba, then it's possible for me to purify my jubba with seven types of water. So that's the physical impurity, najasa, najas. There's another impurity, and that impurity is called, it's an abstract one. It's an impurity that you cannot see with the eye. Abstract means you know it's there in your mind. That's called hadath. Have you heard the term hadath before? If you haven't, then pay attention. Hadath is an abstract impurity. It's an abstract impurity that settles on the body. If you enter into a state of where you require wudu, we call it minor, a minor state of hadath, then there's an abstract impurity that settles on the limbs of the body that we wash when performing wudu. And when I perform wudu, I'm washing that abstract impurity off my body. If I enter into a state of major, a major state of hadath, right, al-hadath al-akbar, that's when ghusl becomes compulsory upon me. And when ghusl becomes compulsory upon me, there's an abstract impurity that settles on my entire body, even under my hair. And therefore the Prophet ﷺ, when he spoke about the compulsory ghusl, he said you should wash your entire body, even under your hair. Do you understand the concept of hadath now? So you have hadath, minor hadath, and you have major hadath. The minor hadath is what we call al-hadathul azghar. <coughs> and the major hadath is what we call al-hadath al-akbar. Hadath azghar requires hudu, ablution. And hadath akbar requires a ghusl or a shower. Everyone's with me? But the point again is, how do I remove the hadath from my arm? And from my body, what do I need to use? Water. And therefore the author, he said, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with him. Purification is possible with seven types of water. Now you will see that he's trying to cover within these seven points all types of water. So he starts off by saying, Ma'usama, uh, which literally translates as water from the skies. Which here means rain. And then he said, Ma'ul bahar. What's a bahar? Ocean, sea. So we're speaking about sea water. Ma'ul bi'ri. Actually very interesting. Regarding rainwater, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Quran, وَأَنزَلْنَا مِنَ السَّمَاءِ مَاءً طَهُورًا We have sent down from the skies water that is tahur. مَاءً طَهُورًا So perhaps more for the, uh, the, 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 the Arabic students, but for everyone in general, the, the word tahur is an amazing word. Because you have two words. You have, you have the word tuhur with a tamma on the ta, and you have the word tahur with a fatha on the ta. Tuhur with a tamma on the ta is the act of cleansing. Right? But the word tahur refers to something that is pure within itself, and it also purifies besides it. Right? So it's not just water that is pure. Allah is not sending down from the skies water that is pure. But when Allah uses the term tahur, Allah is telling us water is pure. And the water also has the ability to purify besides it. So that's with regards to rainwater. With regards to water of the oceans, the companions, radiallahu ta'ala anhum, they, they want to sure whether they could use that for wudu or not. Because it, for, for, the, for, a, for a start, it's salty water. So can it be used, can it not be used? 
So Allah, uh, they, they came to the Prophet a group of the companions, and they were fishermen. And they said, Ya Rasulullah, we ride the oceans, and we're only able to carry very little water with us to drink. Can we perform hudu with salt, with sea water? And then the Prophet وسلم, he responded by saying that its water is not just not just tahir, not just pure, but tahur. Again, the word tahur meaning pure in itself and it has the ability to purify. So its water is tahur. Its carrion is hill. Its carrion is halal. If I want to eat any animal, a sheep or a goat, it must be slaughtered. It must be slaughtered with certain rules. A dhabh shar'i, a legal Islamic slaughtering. But when it comes to fishing the sea, do I have to slaughter it? Al-hillu maytatu, the Prophet said, it's carrion is halal. And therefore you don't need to slaughter a fish. It can just die and you may eat it. You understand that? So the fishermen would appreciate that better. Is there any fisherman with her? No one, no one catches fish here. Oh, Abdullah, Abdullah does everything. <laughs> right? So you don't need to you don't need to slaughter a fish for it to become halal. Rasulullah The point here is that the hadith establishes that sea is pure and purifies. The second one was Ma'ul Bi'r. Bi'r is going to be I think the, the order is not, the Arabic and the English, the order is not the same. So in the Arabic, Ma'ul Bi'r is going to be well water. So who said well water is, can purify? Sulaiman. So the Prophet wasallam he was asked about a well by the name of Buda'a, Bi'r Buda'a. Now the problem with Bi'r Buda'a is that some filth used to, there used to be floods, rain and floods. And that floods would take a whole lot of dirt and throw it into this well. So they wanted to know, or sometimes people used to just throw dirt into the well. Could they use the water, yes or no? And the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, responded by saying that, Al-ma'u la as water, and nothing will make it impure. Unless, of course, the color, the smell or taste changes. If there's no change in the color, smell or taste, it remains pure. So the Prophet was speaking about a well which establishes that well water is pure. And then the next one was river water. Now there's no specific hadith to say that water, river water is pure and purifies, but there's a consensus by the scholars and ijma. All scholars agreed that river water has the power to, is not only pure in itself, but has the power to purify. And the next one was spring water. And spring water would be similar to well water because both are coming from the ground. And ma'uthalj and barad, snow and hail, is similar to rain because they are coming from the skies. And Allah said, we have sent down to you from the skies water that is tahur. So these are the seven types of water. Can you think of another category of water? These are your seven types of water. This is a, these are the seven types of water in the original state. And all of these waters can be used for purification. Everyone has that. <coughs> so, ma'u zamzam. Where does that fit in? Well water. Because ma'u zamzam is a well. comes from a well. Can it be used for cleansing? Yes, it can be used. 
In fact, the Prophet ﷺ used it, except that our scholars, they considered it to be makru, reprehensible, something which is disliked by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to use zamzam hotep for the removal of najasa. If I have urine laying somewhere, then to remove that urine with zamzam is considered makru, because zamzam has an added value to it, in that it's, a, it's sacred. Our Prophet وسلم, he said, Ma zamzam lima Zamzam hoti is for whatever it is, is for, what, for whatever intention one drinks it with, that is what it's for. So drink it for shifa, it gives you shifa. Drink it for rizq and sustenance, it will be a cause of rizq and sustenance. Right? Ma zamzam lima So it can be used, and it is tahir, and it is mutahir, it pure, and it purifies, but the scholars considered and deemed it makru, reprehensible, to use it for the removal of najasa. Khair. Which brings me to another question. What is the best water that there is? The best water that the world has seen? Our scholars discuss all of this in the, in the length, more lengthier works, and therefore I'm getting into it. So there was a debate. Is, so there was a debate. Is Ma'u Zamzam the best water that the world has seen? Yes or no? They said no. The best water was water there? That gush was from the hands between the fingers of the Messenger Muhammad sallallahu alaihi was on an expedition on one occasion, and there was a scarcity of water. And then the companions that came to the Prophet sallallahu complaining about the scarcity of water, the time for salah was about to enter. So Rasul sallallahu alaihi said that uh, gather whatever water there is, and they gathered a little bit of water that there was among the companions in a small vessel. And then the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, he took his hand and he placed his hand in the water and the companion said we could see water gushing forth from between the fingers of the Messenger وسلم, and he said Tawadda'u Bismillah all of you perform hudu in the name of Allah and then the water sufficed it for the entire army sufficed for the entire army so when the scholars discuss what was the, the best water that the world has seen they said it was not Zamzam but the best water was a water that came from between the fingers of the Messenger Muhammad sallallahu ta'ala alayhi wa sallam. So that types of water, right? These waters are further going to be placed into <coughs> categories. Because rain water sometimes, the, 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 the nature of the water could change. Well water, the nature of it could change. So we need to take these waters and then place them into various categories to determine what water can be used for purification and what water can not be used for purification. Everyone with me? If there are questions that needs an immediate answer, you may ask during class, inshallah. Read, Hussein. There are four categories of water, pure and purifying, not offensive to use, it is plain water. Pure and purifying, yet offensive to use, it is water ir 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 irradiated by the sun, mushammas, pure, yet, yet non-purifying. It is water that has been used to raise ritual impurity or remove filth, or has been changed by pure substances that have admixed with the water. Impure. It is water in which filth has been admixed while the water is either less than two kula in volume or at least two kula in volume and has changed. Two kula equal approximately 500 Baghdadi rital, approximately 216 liters or 57.1 gallons, according to the soundest opinion. Tani, 
Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Hey, so the author now gets into the various types of authors. And I, I need you to be with me over here for a, for a moment. There are only four. I need you to memorize these categories. The first category he called it pure and purifying. The Arabic word for pure is tahir. And the Arabic word for purifying is mutahir. If you can memorize the Arabic, it's better. So tahir, intrinsically pure. Mutahir has the ability to purify besides it. It has the ability to purify something else. So the first category is pure and purifying. One category. The second category is pure and to revise. The first category, pure and purifying, not offensive to use it. Not makro to use it. Second category, also pure and purifying, but makro to use it. Third category, pure, intrinsically pure, but not purifying. Cannot purify. It's pure, but cannot be used for purification. And the fourth category, impure. Everyone has that. So pure purifying, not offensive to use. Pure purifying, offensive to use. Pure, not purifying. And then impure. Simple, right? So what are the categories that we're speaking about here? The first category, pure purifying, not offensive to use, is what he called ma'ul mutlaq. Now he translated it here as plain water. Or one could say water that is some would call it general water. Some would call it free water. The concept al-mutlaq, it merely means that the water is not restricted in any way. It doesn't have a quality that is uh, lazim, binding. It doesn't have a quality that sticks to it that cannot be removed. I'll give you an example. If you take, I take a jug of water. And then I fetch some aura syrup and I pour that aura syrup into the water. The water now becomes juice. <laughs> the water now becomes juice. Can that still be called water? I can call it maybe juice water or I can call it orange water. But now the water is no longer unrestricted. Unrestricted means just water. Restricted means that such a quality was added to the water, which means I cannot really call it water any longer. I have to call it something with water. I must say juice water or orange water, something water. I can't just call it water any longer. The same if I boil some water and I place a tea bag in it. Or even better if I go to the Timbuktu coffee and I order me a latte. Can I st There's no water that really goes into a latte. Just milk. <laughs> but nonetheless, the idea I put a tea bag into, now the water changes completely. Is that water? I can call it water, but I'm going to have to call it tea water. It can't just be called water. So the first category is water that can just be called water. You don't need to add any quality to it. And if a quality is added, I can remove the quality and I will still be truthful. Like someone may say, well, what if you add the quality tap water? So now, that's not water, it's tap water. But would it be, the response would be, when I remove the water from the tap and I have it in a bowl or something, am I still truthful when I call it water? And I don't call it tap water. Am I still truthful? It's still water. So the quality of tap is 
can be, it cannot be there. It's not essential. It's not lazim. It's not, it's not binding to the water. So it can still be called water. Right? But if I take the coffee out of the coffee shop, can I call it water? No. It's no longer water. It's a quality that is intrinsic now to that water that means it's no longer uh, unrestricted. It's restricted. It's no longer mutlaq. You, you, you have an appreciation for what we're speaking about here. Al-ma'ul mutlaq. Uh, or, or, or plain water. So the first category is plain water, water that was not changed in any way. So it's water that comes from rain, water that comes from the ocean, from your tap, as long as it's, it's not restricted in any way. The second category was water which is pure, purifies, but it's makru to use. And the only example of that, it's just one example, the only example is going to be uh, sun-heated water, al-ma'ul mushammas. And this is based on a report that came from Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu ta'ala an. Umar radiallahu ta'ala an used to say that sun-heated water has a, a, a chemical that lays on top of it which causes leprosy, paras. But that was something that had to be tested by doctors to ascertain is it true or not. Umar radiallahu ta'ala an was passing a judgment based on the knowledge that he received from doctors in his time. And uh, medicine is something which develops and people get to understand the chemical components of water better. So does it cause baras, yes or no? First of all, they said it only applies to water that lays in a metal container other than gold and silver. In a metal container and it has to be in countries where the, where the heat is intense. So you don't get sun-heated water in South Africa because the heat is not intense. We're speaking about 50 degrees plus. So when water is laying 50 degrees plus in a metal container, there's some type of chemical reaction that creates a chemical that they call in Afik works Zuhuma, and that causes baras. But then even doctors came to say thereafter that that's inaccurate. And therefore, the likes of Al-Imam Al-Nawawi, rahimahullah ta'ala, he did not consider sun-heated water to be. He said it's pure, he said it purifies, and it's not makru to use it, hypothetically. Right? So that's the second category. And the second category doesn't really apply to us Muslims here in South Africa either way. The third category was pure only, but does not have the capacity or ability to purify. And there are many examples of that. We just made some of them. Orange water, can it be used for purification? Orange juice, can I use that for wudu? No. Is it pure? If it wasn't pure, you couldn't drink it. So it is pure, but it cannot be used for purifying. Tea, is it pure? Yes, it is pure, but it cannot be used for purifying. And then you have impure. And impure is going to be water where najasa fell into. Now when it comes to impure water, they divide water into two categories. You have what they call kullatain, beyond two kullas, and you have less than two kullas. And kullatain is a measurement. What was the measurement that he gave? 216 meters. He said 216 meters. I'd, I'd like to revisit. Generally, when it comes to these type of discussions, we take our um, calculations from a text by a doctoral thesis authored by a scholar by the name of Dr. Muhammad Sulaiman al-Kurdi, um, who submitted a doctoral thesis to the Al-Azhar University some time, time ago, where he did all these different calculations. So you're going to find different scholars would come to different conclusions, but it always between 200 liters and 216 liters approximately. So if water is more than 200 liters, there's a certain rule that applies to it. If it's less than 200 liters, 
There's a different rule that applies to it. Less than 200 liters, if Najasa falls into it, whether it causes change in its smell, taste, or color, it becomes impure. It doesn't matter. If water is less than 200 liters and Najasa falls into it, it's impure. No questions asked. But if water is more than two kulas, more than 200 liters, and Najasa falls into it, then you don't haste to make a decision. You first ask yourself, is there a change in its color? Is there a change in its taste? Is there a change in its smell? If the answers are no, no, and no, then the water remains pure, even though Najasa fell into it. And that in a nutshell is the various categories of water. And we hope to elaborate a bit more on that, as well as the chapters that lie ahead when we meet next week, inshallah ta'ala. We have about uh, 10 minutes left to continue with our second text, with the permission of Allah. So the second book, we introduced it, and we said that it's the author of it. He was the great scholar, Sheikh Abu Bakr bin Salim. Bin Abdullah bin Abdurrahman bin Abdullah, Al-Imam Al-Aydarus rahimahullahu ta'ala. The key to the inner secrets. And Imam Abu Bakr bin Salim was an amazing individual. I spoke about him last week. We need to make a start with his book. Um, he was 17 years old, I said, when he authored this work. And uh, uh, this book is important because the book speaks about purifying our inner self. So we spoke about physical we spoke about purifying our outer beings, whether it was from a physical impurity or whether it was from a hadath, an abstract impurity, but the focus was cleaning or purifying our outer beings. And this particular text is not too much concerned with that outer being of, an, of a human, but is more focused with the, the inner, the heart. How does one purify himself from? Within. And... Uh, uh, the author's preface is what I'd like to read today, inshallah ta'ala, or at least part of it. So we ask our brother Hussein to continue. All praise is due to God, the unique, the dominator, the imminent, the off-forgiving, the concealer, the compiler. He splits the sky into dawn and has made the night for a repose and the sun and moon for a reckoning. That is the ordaining of the imminent, the omniscient. omniscient. He is God. There is no deity save He. The Lord of the tremendous throne, knower of the unseen and the seen, the imminent, the merciful, the one who lifted his veil, that, that lay between him and his protected friends, such that they witnessed him in everything, by means of the eye of inner sight, which is not veiled by anything, thereby miracles manifested at their hands, that suspended customary experience. May God benefit through them. Amen. Khair, to just a comment on the translation is that my preference is that when Whoever one reads uh, Allah's name, to leave it as Allah and not to read it as God. Uh, the author begins his book by mentioning some of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he said the unique, the dominator, the eminent, the off-forgiving, the concealer, the compeller. These are all uh, names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and qualities of his. And then he quoted the verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that he split the sky into dawn and has made the night for a repose. What is the Arabic of that? Hmm. And the sun and moon for a reckoning. That is the ordaining of the imminent, the omniscient. So that's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in charge of everything. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the creator of the universe. Our purpose and our objective is to draw close to Allah. Our Focus should be Allah. Our lives should be Allah. 
Allah is our creator. He's the creator of everything we see. The sad thing is that as human beings, we fail to see Allah in everything. In everything, there is a sign indicating that Allah is one. But why are we failing to see these signs? Right, that on the one hand. And on the other hand, because our spiritual inner sight is blind, we don't see the manifestations of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the qualities of Allah in everything before us. So imagine the heart, once it's purified, what type of a life do you live? Even if you wanted to forget Allah, you cannot. Because you're just witnessing Allah everywhere, every time, all day. And that's the idea, that's the objective, that's the purpose. That was our messenger Muhammad wasallam. Our Prophet was connected to Allah 24-7. Even when he slept, wasallam. He wasallam, said that, my eyes sleep. لكن قلبي يقضان my heart remains awake remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala some of the pious they said that they said that uh, when they spoke about their fasting they said that if my heart was to disconnect from Allah even for one moment I'll pass judgment that my, my fasting is invalid so it's hearts that are purified that develop inner sight and therefore they witness things that we cannot witness. And that's what the author referred to when he said that, he said that uh, the one who lifted his veil that lay between him and his protected friends, which, which draws to your attention that no one's going to remove veils. Yes, there are methods. And the author will discuss methods. There's making dhikr of Allah. There's protecting the eyes, etc. and so forth. These are all methods. But at the end of the day, Allah needs to remove the veil. So Allah removed the veil from his protected friends such that they witnessed him in everything. They saw Allah in everything by means of the eye of inner sight. Basira. So Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala in the Quran made a reference to this because Allah said that لَكِنْ تَعْمَ الْقُلُوبَ الَّتِي فِي الصُّدُورِ It's their, their hearts within their chest that are blind when Allah spoke about disbelievers and wrongdoers. So when Allah said their hearts within their chest are blind, the unspoken word is that there are those people that have hearts that are not blind, but hearts that can, that can see. And that, that sight is called basira. So he said here that uh, such that they witnessed him, subhanahu wa ta'ala, in everything by means of the eye of inner sight, which is not veiled by anything. Thereby miracles manifested at their hands, that suspended customary experience, may Allah benefit through them. So the, the first people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted this was the Anbiya alayhimu salatu wasalam. And after the Anbiya, and I mentioned this, this this morning specifically, because this should be everyone's aspiration. Everyone's aspiration should be to be from that second category after the Anbiya, which is going to be the Salihin, the pious, the muttaqin, the awliya. Allah gave us the Quran for that very purpose. The Quran is a guide for the muttaqin. Therefore, we should aspire to be from the muttaqin. We should aspire to be from the salihin. We should aspire to be from the awliya, the friends of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, purify our hearts and remove veils. And, and again, in case you think that Allah, that just refers to companions, radiallahu ta'ala, anhum, and the salaf al-salih, no. That, that we have people 
walking around, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, sunnah is such that there will always be on this earth salihin and awliya. And if you're looking for examples, I could, the, one of the examples that come to mind is Shaykh Hamza Yusuf when he speaks about visiting his teacher in Mauritania. His name was Shaykh Murabit al-Hajj. So Hamza Yusuf studied in the Arab lands and eventually he, 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 was, he was stationed somewhere in the Emirates. I forget where exactly. I think Abu Dhabi. Sorry? Al-Ain. And uh, he had a dream. In fact, he had a few dreams of a personality whom he did not know. Right? And he was dreaming of Shaykh Murabit al-Hajj. And uh, he said that the experience he had when he met Sheikh Murabit was just something that cannot be, cannot be explained. And eventually he met friends from Mauritania and he traveled to Mauritania and he came to learn of the Sheikh Murabit al-Hajj. And of course he didn't see Sheikh Murabit. Even today if you were to Google search Sheikh Murabit, there's very little photos in a world where everyone is photo crazy. Right? And back then, there was definitely no photos of him going around on the internet. So he couldn't possibly have known how Sheikh Murabit al-Hajj looks. But eventually, he came to learn of his scholar and he wanted to study. Not knowing that it's the man, the man that he's been seeing in his dreams. And he speaks of his journey because to reach Sheikh Murabit al-Hajj, subhanAllah, was a different story altogether. We have a, I have a friend in Durban, Hussein Kadodi, his name is, he went to Mauritania. He studied with Sheikh Murabit al-Hajj for a short period of time and the experiences, subhanAllah. He, he used to have a laptop that he used to run off a car battery that he took with him. You know, that, that's like today. That's not even 10 years ago when Sheikh Hamza was there. You know, subhanAllah, Westerners try to make things comfortable wherever they are. She do not have electricity. The next big option was to carry a car battery with you. But, but that's not the point. They, they, if you wanted water, they had to catch. There was wild donkeys. You need to go and catch a wild donkey and then take the donkey with you to the well. And then there's a whole skill he was explaining how that water needs to be placed on his back, balanced from one side, one bucket with another bucket, and subhanallah. And that's the conditions that they are living in, as simple as it gets. Real Bedouin de desert Arab style. And Shah Hamza speaks about the lengthy journey how he eventually reaches the area of Shaykh Murabit al-Hajj and he enters the tent. And when he enters the tent, he sees that he sees the man that he's been seeing in his dream, that he met in his dream so many a time. And he went up to Shaykh Murabit and greeted him. And the first word that Shaykh Murabit al Hajj said to him that is this better than your dream? <laughs> right? Is this better than your dream? So there are men like that in this world today. But we're not connecting ourselves to them. We're not speaking about them. We're not taking blessing from their sohbah. So Allah said in the Quran, وَكُنْ مَعَ الصَّادِقِينَ Be with those who are truthful with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the question we need to be asking ourselves is that how long are we going to deprive ourselves from their company? مَا لَذَّةُ الْعَيْشِ إِلَّا صُحْبَةُ الْفُقَرَةِ Shashayba wa Madiani said that there is no enjoyment in life other than the companionship of the saints of Allah. هُمُ السَّلَاطِينَ وَالسَّادَاتُ وَالْأُمَرَى They are the true sultans. They are the masters and they are the leaders. هُمُ السَّلَاطِينُ وَالسَّادَاتُ وَالْأُمَرَى So it's not the White House or as far as we, we respect all and we love all but 
the true leaders in my heart and the Muslim's heart should be what? As those people that's living in the middle of a desert in Mauritania or in the desert in the middle of Hadramaut. People that their lives from beginning to end is for Allah. That's all they know from beginning to end. From youth already their minds are trained in one way and that is Allah and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So it's hearts which are pure, hearts which are pure. Some, some of them, their hearts were not purified. But they were just born with pure hearts, already purified. So just imagine what the state of our hearts are. How much, how much filth have we looked at with our eyes? How much wrong have we listened to with our ears? And these are all avenues to our hearts. So just imagine what the state of our hearts are. And therefore, the importance of this particular text the key to the inner secrets and the coin of treasures so that we can attain purity within so that we can become of those select servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may Allah make us from them may Allah allow us to be in their company may Allah allow us to benefit from them so we're going to have to conclude there now the time for Ishraq has entered May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept our intentions. May Allah accept this gathering of ours. May Allah overlook our shortcomings. We pray, we pray that Allah allows us through the studying and the reading of the sticks that our hearts are purified. That He removes these spiritual ailments and sicknesses from our heart. And we have so many of them. That He removes darkness from our heart. The darkness of our, the sins of our eyes and the sins of our... A person entered the masjid of man Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu ta'ala an. He's speaking about insight. A person entered the masjid of Uthman ibn Affan. And then that person, he was looking at females. Haram. And he entered the masjid. And Uthman ibn Affan, he said, Why are the people entering my masjid and their eyes are filled with zina? So a man was so shocked. He said, Awahyun ba'da Rasulullah. Is this revelation after the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? And Uthman ibn Affan said, no. He said, اتقوا فراسة المؤمن Fear the فراسة of a believer فإنه ينظر بنور الله He sees with the nur of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. May Allah grant us that فراسة. May Allah allow us to see with His nur. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us insight. Subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifun. Wasalaman ala al-mursaleen. Walhamdulillah rabbil alameen. We have a group of young brothers from Drift Sands under the guidance of Sheikh Yasin over here. Uh, that will be spending a day with us. The day started with Fajr and the class this morning. And uh, from here they will be having breakfast at the Timbuktu bookstore. And from there they will be going to the wine book bar. What bar? Wine. The wine book bar. And the idea is to create brotherhood between uh, brothers such as ourselves from more affluent areas with brothers of less affluent areas. And whoever has free time to join us during the course of the day. They'll be up till the word at the Weinberg Park. You are welcome. Then uh, it will be an honor if you were to join us, inshallah ta'ala. Jazakumullah khair. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh.